Well, we thank our God for gathering us again this week around His Word. Now, let me invite you to turn back with me to John chapter 10, if you haven't already, and be finding verse 22. It feels like a long time ago now that we watched Jesus walk past a blind beggar with His disciples and strike up a conversation with Him. That was the start of chapter 9. Kind of a lot's happened since then because of that conversation. Jesus' disciples had no idea at that moment the firestorm of events that was about to unfold because they had stopped and spoken with that man. And just think of what happened to him because they stopped and talked to him. Uh, it has led to the opening of his eyes, this man who was born blind, it has led to his being removed from the synagogue. It has led to him publicly bowing and worshiping Jesus in John 9.38 as the one who has opened his eyes, not just physically, but opened his eyes to the truth of who Jesus is as the Savior sent from the Father. It's also sparked what we've just finished looking at, the Good Shepherd Discourse that Jesus speaks following some of those confrontations. And coming into verse 22, you'll notice as you look at that verse, it is possible that some time has passed now since what we've been looking at, although if so, probably very little. But we have now our next sort of time marker that John likes to give us through this gospel. He tells us here that it is now the Feast of Dedication. It helps us to get our bearings here, you know the short name for that feast. This is Hanukkah. It's time for Hanukkah. Uh, this is the celebration that they began to observe around 165 B.C. It's one of the latest that the Jews observe. It's not even in the Old Testament. It marked the rededication of the temple. Uh, and it was set to be an eight-day celebration starting on the 25th day of their month, Kislev. That more or less coincides with December. That's why Hanukkah and Christmas are always right near each other. But what do you know? In Jerusalem, at that time of year, it's cold. It's winter. And even there, uh, today, the average temperature in Jerusalem in December is upper 40s. And John gives us that as the reason that when this begins here, we find Jesus walking, not out in the open court of the temple, but underneath Solomon's porch, or Solomon's colonnade. That's a covered area on the east side of the temple. So he's walking in that limited space, and that's what allows then uh, this particular setting. You've got a group of Jews that surround him there in order to force an answer to a question. It's a question that they feel like he has been dodging. That's what we're about to witness, the questioning and Jesus' answer. Verses 22 to 24 give us the setup for this the setup for Jesus' answer. But before we go any further, let's hear the passage in its entirety. I'd like to read verse 22 down to verse 31 of John 10, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John continues in this way. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. 
It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You can tell maybe this is a passage we have before us that requires some deep thinking, some careful thinking. You hear their question that kicks off what follows. You see it in verse 24. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. How long will you keep us in suspense? They use an expression there, a figure of speech. Literally, they say, how long will you lift our souls up? Or how long will you take our souls away? We have a sense of what they mean by that expression. It can mean, just like most of our expressions, it can mean more than one thing. It could be a positive thing or a negative thing. Interpreters have decided to view this positively when they put it like, We just read it. How long will you keep us in suspense? That can sound even excited, uh, eager. It could also have a negative idea behind it, something more like, it's been suggested that we should translate this, how long will you continue to annoy us or vex us? Just come out with it already. Either way, the point is clearly that they are expressing impatience, aren't they? They want a clear answer to this question, are you the Christ? And they don't feel they've been given that clear answer. Jesus is going to answer them this morning. And his answer follows a relatively straight line. He's going to move in a way from one to the next. He's going to speak to three things as he replies to them. And when he is finished, they will find in his answer much more than they bargained for. We see him speak to three things. He'll begin in verse 25 addressing his self-testimony. What is it that he has said to them? How long will you keep us in suspense? He's going to speak to what he has revealed to them up to this point. That will be relatively quick, though. He'll He'll move quickly into the second area of focus, really the principal area of focus for us this morning, verses 26 and 27. When he's done explaining his own self-testimony, he secondly starts to address the question of their unbelief. What accounts for your unbelief, given what you have seen, given what I've said? So that's second. The third thing he'll do then is speak to, in verses 28 to 30, his deliverance of his sheep. Are you the Christ? He's going to answer them in these ways. Look first again at verse 25. We see him reflecting on his own self-testimony. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. 
the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. It may seem interesting at first to hear him say here, I told you, in reference to a question about the Christ. We've noticed already at a couple of points in this gospel that Jesus works hard to avoid the title Christ or Messiah in public with the Jews. He claimed it very freely in chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. But, but he has consciously avoided that title with the Jews because of the fact that they have come to fundamentally misunderstand what God was promising when he promised the Messiah. They've imported all kinds of political and theological baggage and misunderstandings into their idea that they have in their head when they hear the word Christ or Messiah. And so it would have been with them counterproductive to his mission to be identified at this point with the title of Christ. So we've seen him avoid that. So what does he mean when he says here, I told you in answer to this question? He is going to point to his works very quickly, but he begins with his speech. I've told you already. So it's good for us to consider what he's actually been saying regarding himself. How has he been describing his person, his work, his identity? And it has not been unclear. It's really been something to go back into what we've seen so far in John's Gospel, asking that question. It has been incredibly clear from our Lord who he says he is. He is the one, he says, who has made, well, it has been made clear that he is the one from whom rescue is going to come to God's people. Rescue comes to them by him. He is the one that has been sent by God himself. His are the words, and only his words, that lead to life. He said these things over and over. I started to add scripture to each of those scripture references to give you, and I just gave up because there are so many times and places where he says these things over and over again. So while he couldn't use the term Christ without being misunderstood by them, the actual reality and promises of a God-sent Savior, these are things that he has claimed for himself in abundance as he's offered himself to them. However, he moves quickly to pointing to his words, doesn't he? Because his self-testimony goes way beyond simply words. He points to his works. He says, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now, what we should be asking here is, in terms of these works, bear witness about what concerning him? The works bear witness about me. They bear witness about him by speaking to and making claims concerning who he is. And I mean, he says this in response to their question, are you the Christ? He's saying, my works bear witness to my being the Christ. This is a question that has been answered in your presence by all that I've told you that I am and by the very works that I have shown you from the Father. Now, there's something that's helpful, I think, for us to remember at this point, and that is that simply the working of miracles does not point to someone as the Christ, does it? Through how many individuals in Scripture did God choose to work miracles? They were not making claims of being the, the Messiah by, the, by virtue of that fact. It's not simply the miracles that bear someone witness that they are the Christ. 
What we find instead here is that God has long described how his promised rest and restoration was going to come. All in the Old Testament, he's promising a coming day. And he's been giving descriptions about what that day would be like. I mean, what it would look like when he sends his servant, the Messiah, to bring rescue to his people. It's in a number of places in the Old Testament, but in particular, it's found in the book of Isaiah. Let me read a few examples of this to you, of the many. I'll give you three. Uh, Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6, says this. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Or Isaiah 61, 1, which Jesus reads in the temple and claims for himself in front of everybody. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. See, Jesus has come, and as he accompanies his teaching with displays of demonstrable power, what we find is that that power is again and again applied in the very places that the Old Testament had said it would when God was sending his divine rescue through his chosen servant. It happens in the same places that they were told to be watching for and waiting for. It's the very same point that Jesus makes in Matthew 11 in response to John the Baptist. Do you remember when he sends word with his disciples to Jesus? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I mean, what is John asking? Are you the one who is to come? Who is to come? He's asking this question. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers him like this. He says to his disciples, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Colon. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead... <clears throat> are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. This is what he sends them back to John the Baptist with, in answer to their question, are you the Messiah? In other words, all the pictures that God told them to expect to see when his rescuing servant finally arrived are the ones on display in the ministry of Jesus. What's just happened is that Jesus has healed a man blind. That is recorded in the Old Testament as happening zero times. It never happened in the Old Testament. And yet, over and over, it's promised to happen. On the day when his Messiah comes, it will happen. And it's just happened in their presence, in the presence of these Jews and of the Pharisees. It's just happened. And what we've seen in the Pharisees is, instead of saying... Where have we heard like something, that something like that might happen? This sounds familiar. Instead of saying that, they say, mm, he's a lawbreaker. He's working on the Sabbath. 
It's not been hard to see for anyone who has eyes to see it. So that very quickly here, this is why he moves from his self-testimony so fast. There's very little time needed in defending himself to this question. The question itself raises, points to the actual question, which is, in light of everything that you have seen and everything that I have said, how is it that you do not believe? How do you not see what God has been preparing his people to see for thousands of years. What you have never seen before until yesterday. How do you not see it as you see it? So Jesus moves very quickly to where the question actually needs to be, which is, what accounts for unbelief when God has put his promises on display for all to see? This is the second point of focus that he brings us to, verses 26 and 27. He continues, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, as I hope we'll see here shortly, he is giving them an answer that he has already made plain a number of times in the Gospel of John. And he makes the same point again here in verse 26. It's a point that we have spoken to as we've come to those things, but we've not placed tremendous focus upon it yet. I've chosen to wait until we get here, and I want us to deal with it more carefully now, since we have gone through those other texts, and we can go back to them and remember the context that those have come up in. This whole issue is a very good example of the reason why we in this church are committed to moving all the way through books of the Bible and not being satisfied to pick and choose where we want to go, where we want to see and hear. Because doing it this way forces us, doesn't it? It forces us to come to places where the Bible might say something hard, hard to chew and swallow, hard to understand maybe something controversial in a particular time. It, it keeps us from hobby-horsing our way through God's Word or just hearing the things that are easy or pleasing to everybody. I hope you see today, you, 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 can't, you could do that. People do that. You can't live a healthy Christian life that way. Any more than our kids could live a healthy life by a steady diet of whatever they would like to eat. A steady diet of cotton candy and soft drinks. I'm not throwing any child under the bus there. It's just not conducive to health, would it be? We understand that. And so we find here something challenging, something that we can tell this is not cotton candy. Whatever this is, whatever this means, this is meat. I need to chew on this a little bit. It's stated in verse 26. Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And what he's describing here is some reality that is prior to belief, that must be true if belief is going to come. Do you hear it? You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He's not commanding them to believe in order to become his sheep. It's the opposite of what he's saying. He's simply describing something about his sheep, isn't he? 
Only my sheep are going to believe when they hear me. It's just a continuation of the picture we've seen for the last couple of weeks. Sheep know their shepherd's voice. And they come to him when, they come, when, when he calls. They don't come at the call of strangers. If I am talking to you, he says, and I sound like a stranger to you, it's because you are not of my sheep. That's what you are showing. Now this needs to be understood very, very carefully, often because it's so easy to misunderstand. And I think there's a couple of steps we need to walk through in this passage to help us with this. The first one is for me to make a statement and then defend it. So let me say this and then explain it. Sometimes that's the easiest way to to move forward in something. Uh, Who are the sheep he's describing here? My sheep hear my voice. And as you're thinking about that question, you might even look back up to verse 16 when he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must call them also and they will listen to me. Who, who, Who is this group, this sheep? What I want to say to begin here is this is not simply speaking of human beings who presently in that moment know and trust him. To put it most simply, the the general group that the scriptures speak about so often that he is pointing to here is the group that is called the elect of God. This is the group, I mean, those words come up in more New Testament books than they don't. It's clearly a group. The question is, who is that? Who is it talking about? It's a group, Ephesians 1.4, that Paul says are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's a group that he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 are appointed to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. It's the group that we hear very interestingly spoken of in Acts 13.48. This is is just the wording of the, the deliberateness of this as Luke is writing this. When the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now what? Why did you say it that way? It sounds very much like what Jesus has just said here about his sheep, doesn't it? Good gospel comes out, many rejoice, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. He's speaking there in reference to this group that the Bible calls the elect. That's the group that Jesus is describing here as his sheep. But what we're noticing first is that those who belong to that group in the way he is speaking here are known to God even before they come to faith in Christ. You see that. It's the Ephesians 1 sort of statement. Whatever this is, it's something that God has done before the foundation of the world. There is a moment in time in every person's life, in every Christian's life, when they come to trust on the Lord Jesus Christ in space and time, and they receive forgiveness. What we find here is that they are known by God even before that. Verse 16, as I mentioned, is a great example of this. There are sheep that he says he has that he must also bring. These are the elect. uh, individuals from among the Gentiles, right? But they haven't yet been called by Christ in space and time. They haven't yet heard his voice. They haven't yet listened to his voice. But what does he know about them, about his sheep among the Gentiles? He knows this. When I go, myself, 
or through those I will send, and I call to them, what will happen? They will hear my voice. They'll hear in the call of the gospel the voice that is to be trusted to know and understand anything, and they will listen. This is how he's been describing it all along. So you have this group now being spoken of that can be spoken of as somehow being his even before he calls them in space and time. What he says in our text is, to this group asking him this question, he says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. Now, once we have that in place, that he's referring to a group of people whom he already knows, even before he calls them, what we need to do next is to remember some of the other ways that Jesus has already spoken of this reality in this gospel. So would you turn with me back to John chapter 6? We'll move around a bit, but we'll kind of camp at verse 44. John 6, 44. We'll start there. Jesus said there, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Speaking of meat that needs to be chewed on, this would be another one of those sorts of statements, wouldn't it? This isn't just an easy thing. And especially this is complicated because it's been understood in more than one way. You've really got two choices here. When he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Either this is a drawing that God does to everyone, so that Jesus is saying, without the work of God, no one will come to me. But God has drawn everyone in this, uh, in this way. Um, either God does that drawing here to everyone, or it's a drawing that God does only for some. Those are the two options in understanding the statement. If he draws in this way only some, then what Jesus is saying is that that drawing on God's part is the decisive action in people's coming to him. Does that make sense? No one can come unless God draws him, and those whom he draws will come. They came to Christ because God drew them to his son. That's, that's if he means that God only draws some in this way. If this is a statement of God drawing everyone, then because not everyone comes, and I hope we would agree with that, everyone who's ever been born, is not going to wind up in heaven. That is not the testimony of the scriptures, is it? If it's God drawing everyone, then because everyone doesn't come, this drawing would not then be the decisive explanation for who comes, would it? He's drawing everyone. Everyone does not come. So the drawing there would not be the decisive explanation for who comes. And there, listen, this is important. There certainly are places in the Bible where a general, expansive thing goes out from God to all mankind. A general call. That is described in the Bible. So Matthew twenty-two fourteen 14 will say, many are called, but few are chosen. That, that is the case in a way. The question is, is that what Jesus is meaning here? And the problem that I would suggest to you was seeing John six forty-four that way that God is drawing everyone in this, is the simple fact that Jesus points back to that down in verse 65. He's going to point back to verse 44 
down in 65. Look at what he says there. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, first of all, he words it differently there, doesn't he now? He speaks of it as being granted, the coming being granted. But it's a direct reference to what he said up in verse 44. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. What's the reason? Why did this come up? Well, what he's doing in that passage is he's explaining, the, really, he's explaining the presence of Judas. But not just Judas, he's explaining the phenomenon of everyone who does not believe and come to him. Look up at verse 64. He said, but there are some of you who do not believe. For, and this is John giving this aside, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Can you see that if we try to go with option, what was that option? Two? In interpreting the drawing of everyone, that this is something here in this text that God is doing to all mankind, can you see that Jesus pointing to it as an explanation makes no sense at all? He said, my words are life, and yet some of you don't believe. That's why I told you that God draws everybody. That doesn't make any sense for him to say in the course of that reasoning that he's giving them. He is giving them an explanation for why some have not believed. How does he point to verse 44 to explain some not believing if in verse 44 he was speaking about a drawing that God has done for everyone? It doesn't work. However, it makes complete sense for Jesus to point to verse 44 there if that drawing is, in fact, the difference maker between those who believe and those who do not. If that's what he meant in verse 44, it makes perfect sense for him to bring it up here later in that chapter. I'll just point one more thing out from chapter 6 here before we come back to chapter 10, and that is that the text gives us no reason at all to think that he's doing something different in verse 44 compared to what he just did in verse 37. So go back up again. I told you we'd anchor in 44, but we'll go around a bit. Look up at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Go down to 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, did you hear how we just ended that? Whoever he's talking about there, what is his plan? I will raise them up on the last day. Did you remember that that's the same way he ends verse 44? I will raise these people I'm talking about up on the last day. Who are they? In 37 to 39, there are those whom he says the Father has given him. Who is that? Is that every man, woman, and child? It's a particular people obviously there. The same people are being spoken of in verse 44, as he calls them, quote, those whom the Father draws to him. It is not describing something that God does to every single human being. So on that basis, I say, and this is why I'm connecting it with our text this morning, that what Jesus is explaining in chapter 10 is the same thing he's already explained in terms of the Father giving a certain people to him, in eternity past, all of whom will be rescued. 
and of the Father drawing a people to Christ in 644, and of the Father granting them to come to him in verse 65 of that chapter. So as we come back to our passage in chapter 10, Jesus here is explaining their unbelief by virtue of the fact that he says they do not belong to him. They are not of his sheep. They have not been given to him by the Father, John 6, 37. The Father has not chosen mercifully to draw them to Jesus, John 6, 44. There's so much more that we could and maybe should say about this. We'll save it for other times. That's why it's good that we're in a long-term relationship here as a church body. But the last thing to say about this before we move on to Jesus' third place of attention is to just make a definitive statement that none of what we have just said about God calling some to himself in an effectual way, drawing us irresistibly. None of this is in any conflict at all with the reality of your coming freely to Christ. When you are convicted of sin and see Jesus Christ as beautiful and as the only answer God has given to rescue us and you come to him, you're doing that freely. And by freely, of course, we simply mean the only thing that could be meant. That when we do that, we are doing exactly what we want to do. Not doing it against my will. It's not that when I put my faith in Christ that God was believing for me. I wasn't the one believing. Absolutely not. You were making a choice when you came to Christ. A free choice. You were doing exactly what you wanted to do. You heard the message of the gospel. And in it, you heard the voice of God himself. This is a voice to listen to. This is a voice that knows me and knows what's good for me. You sensed that he was bred. You sensed that there was no life apart from him. And you came to him. You came to him freely. That was the freest moment in your life right there. All that we're finding in a passage like this this morning is that When you see and hunger and choose freely to follow Christ all the days of your life, what we're finding is there's a reason for that. It's God. It is the good, kind mercy of God. You were blind. And you were deaf. You didn't see his beauty. You didn't hear his trustworthiness. How'd that come to change? How did you come to see? God opened your eyes. That's how. God had mercy on you. That's all that this is. But it is not a mercy that he has had upon everyone. Because then we'd still be searching for the decisive reason why I came to Christ and Frank the unbeliever did not. And then the only possible source of that reason would be who? Well, it would be me. My superior intellect, my superior upbringing, my superior decision-making, that would be the decisive factor that distinguishes me from someone who has not come to Christ. And in contrast to that, Paul says very simply, in Romans 9, he reminds us that God has said, quote, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, this is Paul's conclusion under the inspiration of Scripture, so then it depends of the Holy Spirit, excuse me. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What point is he trying to make 
when he says those things. This is the kind of chewing that we have to do when we are brought to places like this. You could choke on it pretty easily. You got to chew on it a little bit. It demands it. So this morning, we've seen Jesus concentrate in, a, in his answer to their question on his own self-testimony from the past. We've seen him, ex, in essence, explain the unexplainable in presenting the reason for their unbelief in the face of all that they have seen. What we finally find this morning is we hear our Lord articulate, and now with no imagery or word picture at all, at least at the beginning, we hear him articulate how he will deliver his sheep. I am the Christ of God. I am the Messiah. I come and I rescue. What does that deliverance entail? Look at verse 28. Actually, let me start with verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Are you the Christ? I have told you already, and you don't believe, and there is a reason for that. But it is a shame, because here's what I give to those who trust and follow me. Here's what I give to my sheep. And it's not bread this time. It's not living water. It's not light or sight. What he says is, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And their safety in that state is equally proportionate to the very strength of God himself. They are as safe as God is strong. That's how safe his sheep are. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. For believers here this morning, there is nothing more comforting than that. Just how safe are you? We've talked about that before. You are in danger on the day that God the Father loses an arm wrestling match. That's the day that you're in danger. If you are in Christ, if you have seen him as beautiful, seen him as your rescue, seen his blood as sufficient for even your sins, and you've come to him for life, are you safe? Yes. But why? Not because you're pretty sure that you've done enough to make it into heaven. Not for that reason. There are few things further from the message of Scripture than that. You're safe because God has given you to his Son. And he chose you for that purpose before the foundation of the world. What are you going to do to thwart his intentions and the gift he has for his Son? I mean, we're in his very hand. And he says, no one will snatch them out of his hand. Now, there is a metaphor, right? We're not literally in Jesus' hand, 
and the Father doesn't literally have a hand. We are under the guidance and protection of the Messiah sent from God. That's what Jesus is telling us here. And to be under that protection is the very same thing as being under the protection of the Father himself. That's why this shifts from Jesus' hand to the Father's hand. No one will snatch them from my hand, he says. And then he says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, is he the Christ? That was the original question. He's pointed to his works. He's explained their unbelief. He's described just explicitly how he will bring this messianic rescue to God's people. But as he has done so, what his questioners are hearing goes way beyond what they have expected. I mean, they had said, speak plainly. And so he has. <clears throat> but what they have heard is they've, they've heard things that are for them blending together lines that they did not have in mind when they asked that question. Because as he describes his rescue of God's people, he's making statements <clears throat> that are not just messianic. They are divine. He says, I give them eternal life. Wait, what? He's drawing direct lines between himself and the Father. The sheep in the Father's hand are in his hand. Those who belong to the Father have been given to him, individually, him. And it all comes to a climax in verse 30 then, doesn't it? As he says, as he says, I am, am the, I'm going to take a second there. Oh, that was great. <laughs> Verse 30. Uh, this is the peak, like chapter 8's peak was. Before Abraham was, I am. Doesn't get much higher than that. And the peak here is in verse 30. I and the Father are one. It's important for us to understand that, and we'll see it next week as well. But to say a little bit here, Jesus is not claiming here the Father's very identity. In John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word was with God, and that is the parallel uh, statement here. There is a distinction. He's not claiming to be the Father. Fundamentally, he's speaking about a unity of purpose and activity with the Father in saving his people. But it's hard to say that that's all that he has in mind here. Because he's describing a closeness with the Heavenly Father that, that they are completely unprepared to hear about. It goes so far beyond simply purpose. Any prophet could say that they were of the same purpose with the God who sent them. That's what makes them a faithful prophet. But after he says this, after he says what he said here, verse 31, they pick up stones to stone him. Verse 33, for blasphemy. For making himself God. We'll see that next week. My friends, what Jesus is showing them and what he's showing us, therefore, this morning. When your God speaks to you through his word this morning. And here's what we find. Such is our plight as sinful men and women. Such is your plight before a holy God that only God can remedy it. Such is our need that our only hope is 
that he himself might come and rescue us. And that says so much to us. It speaks to the depth of our sin. And it speaks to the height of God's righteousness at the same time. I heard someone once put it something like this. They said, how costly is sin that God must bleed to cure it? How righteous is God that Emmanuel must die to satisfy the demands of that righteousness? This is a realization that brings his people great joy, certainly. But before that, it should bring tremendous trembling. Do you tremble at the realization of the implications of this need? I mean, we're talking about just how very near was your everlasting destruction. What we're saying is that you had absolutely no way to affect it if God did not come and rescue you. It was coming to you. The moment you were conceived, you were fallen in Adam, rightly deserving of God's full justice, his wrath forever. It was right. It was good. And it was coming right at you personally. This is the terrifying situation that every human being is born into in Adam. And there is nothing that we can do. That's what we're finding here. If God does not have mercy, we are utterly without hope. What has to happen? All of the subjects of the sentences to come will be God. God must give you to the flock of Christ. Christ must call to you as his sheep. Christ must lay his life down for you. And if he does not, then you perish. And you perish rightly. And you never finish perishing. That is a position of utter dependence. And this is what God's word tells us about our state. About why Christ had to come. God reveals these things to us in an act of great kindness. It is a realization that drives us to our knees, isn't it? And the call from God, as he has revealed this to us, our complete need and dependency upon him to have mercy, the call from God then is not for us to seek to peer into the hidden things of God, to try to peer into divine eternal election, for example, with questions like, how can I know if I'm one of the elect? That's just utterly the wrong question. And what do you know then? The Bible never tells us to ask that question. Instead, what we're told to ask is, how may I be saved? There's a flock that is utterly safe. What does a sheep in that flock do? What is that flock? Well, this is a flock that heard that shepherd's voice. They trust the good shepherd. They listen to that shepherd and they follow after that shepherd as if their lives depended upon it. We come to know that in the gospel. And then we do it. We come to Christ asking for mercy and forgiveness. Not wondering 
if we were secretly never of his flock, but hearing his promise that there's never been one that's come to him in, in, in through the gospel asking for forgiveness and been turned away. That has never happened. It will never happen. We have it on the authority of his very promise. The Bible tells us, in other words, where to focus our attention as it is revealing these sorts of deep truths to us. And so we hear and we respond. We tremble at the threats that are coming against our sin because we believe the voice that is telling us these warnings. We, we can tell that he knows us. He knows what I am like inside, like no one else knows me. He knows what I'm really deserving of. And he's giving me an opportunity for mercy and forgiveness and pardon. I hear the voice of a good shepherd, and I follow it. And when I do that, I then thank God. Here's the point of these kinds of texts. I thank God because I know it would never have been possible if he had not shown me mercy first. Such knowledge as we are given in a passage like this does not complicate a sinner's path forward. It simplifies it. It makes him tremble if he is called by God. Those who do not know God, who do not hear his voice, who are haters of God, hear these things and care nothing for them, are scandalized by the implications. You think I'm like, what? They don't tremble at his voice. When a sinner hears the scriptures and trembles at his voice, that's the response of a sheep who recognizes the voice of a good shepherd. And he takes that path and escapes safely as he joyfully, freely walks after his Savior. That is called Christ's sheep hearing his voice and following him. We will praise our Heavenly Father forever that such is his goodness and kindness that he sent a Savior to come and rescue his wayward sheep, whom he knows by name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that in the days and weeks to come that you would attend your word by your spirit, that there would be throughout our body, Lord, that there would be a growing sense of gratitude, a growing awareness of our dependence upon you, that you would be leading us to take any thoughts that we might have had of ourselves as decisive in a way that only you could ever be decisive, or that you would be humbling us by your word. We marvel at the power of your word to do just that to humble your people, to sharpen your people, to sanctify us, to cause us to turn our eyes outward from ourselves and up to you, and then in worship, out to those around us as well. There is no force on earth to create such a thing like your word. And we thank you for its power in the lives of your people this morning. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.